0: glad to have you here and we're gonna have a look at uh, how are we going to uh, return to joy at the end of this conference. Joy is the basis of our individual and corporate identities both biologically and spiritually and uh, what joy allows us to do is to act like ourselves even when we're under distress or pain. And to do that we have to learn how to return to joy together. So what we're going to look at is a quick review of our joyful identity and then we're going to turn to the subject of pain and suffering and see how our joyful identity helps us to deal with the pain and suffering in our lives. So this is a review, the first part will be a a quick review and then the last part will be dealing with uh, really the subject of the conference. Uh, In other words all of the lectures we've given so far are to prepare us for this, the answer that's coming up. How does all of this now tie back into pain and suffering and how we deal with that? Well grow. The only thing that infant will actually pursue actively on their own is joy. It's the one thing that motivates them. It's the unifying aspect of our nervous system. Uh, it is the major aspect of the control center of our nervous system which is in the right orbital prefrontal cortex that's the part of your brain that has the first and last word over everything that happens in your nervous system, from your immune system on up through your pain regulation to uh, your relationships, your choices. This This is the control center and its main structure, how it actually physically grows is determined directly by the amount of joy that you receive and how those joyful interactions occur with others. In other words, We were meant to start with joy, we are always meant to end in joy, we are creatures of joy, that is the main aspect of who we are. And so if we are real wise about joy, we grow up to be the people we're supposed to be. Now both of our individual and group identities are based on joy, and this comes out of the stages of a man's life. But the first three stages on here, and the first one isn't listed on the overhead, but it's listed on your page paperizingly based on joy, the joy that the mother and, and even father may have in anticipating that child's birth. That they're present, welcoming them, that, saying I'm glad to be with you. And there's already a pre-birth sense of being rejected, unwanted, if some, you know, the, the infant feels that people are not going to be glad to be with them, they're not glad that they're here. The uh, infant stage is also part of building a joyful identity because that is actually where most of these brain structures grow. During that time how much we grow and how much of our growth we're able to keep afterwards is directly related to the kind of joyful attention that we receive. So if we receive lots of messages that people are glad and joyful to be with us during that time, they're appropriately handled, they're they're glad to be with us in good times as well as bad, Um, then we begin to develop a very strong resilient joyful identity and if we get messages that people are not glad to be with us, our body begins to pump cortisol and that begins to dissolve our nervous system and destroy it and make us try to find some other way to solve the problem for which there is no other solution. And cortisol is uh, the part of what gives us our sense of distress but the most, uh, I think the most important finding is that Uh, In studying mental toughness, that is, the people who are mentally tough, they're able to endure stressful situations and hard times. They can go into an emergency, a catastrophe, a disaster, and they come out the outside, on the other side, okay, they were tough, are the people who do not pump cortisol. So, the absence of cortisol is the determining factor between people who are mentally tough in the presence of suffering, distress, and stress, and those who crumble as a result of it. So if all the people who develop stress-related disorders are those who have high levels of cortisol <coughs> when in trouble. In other words, they are not anticipating that there'll be a return to joy from this. And those who anticipate there'll be a return to joy will be glad to be together at some point, even if it isn't right now, that's gonna happen. They are mentally tough. They can take on hard things. They say, this is awful, this is terrible, this is a wa- terrible disaster, but it will lead us to where we are going to be glad to be together once again. That's mental toughness. And when that happens, your body simply doesn't produce the cortisol. Very crucial factor here. And so we're talking about how do you endure in the presence of suffering. It's obviously important if you want to do that from a nervous system point of view, the physical bodies we live with, we learn that by having joy and returning joy and learning to live out of this state of cortisol pumping. And which is this, oh, we're not going to be glad to be together. So, one other way of saying that is don't let the sun go down upon your wrath. Don't end any day that isn't in joy. You know, be sure you're glad to be together before you go to sleep. Right. Otherwise, your body's going to pump cortisol all night and just erase any benefits you might add from that day. Uh, and probably subject you to all sorts of stress disorders as a result long term. Not good. And it'll dissolve up to 25% of your brain librarian actual nervous system tissue damage dissolved, taken away permanently out of your brain by cortisol. It's, it's not good. Okay. Now it has some benefits but you heard those the other day. But for the benefits are basically to keep us from actually liking to be in an unjoyful state. So it, it's there a very strong reminder this isn't good for you. Okay, so the child develops a joy-based identity I mean the infant does and then at age four when they become a child they learn how to take that joyful identity out in the world and be joyful in the presence of others as they're exploring the world so they learn to take care of one person in the world that's a joyful identity they're glad to be part of their community glad to be part of their family they're glad to be part of the human community there's a sense of being glad to be together This prepares us for the last three stages of maturity that produce a joyful group identity, a corporate identity. As an adult, the main requirement is you learn to take care of more than one person at a time. Yeah, thank you. There you go. So you take care of more than one person at at a time, you have a group identity. We are dealing with this problem now. The number one uh, characteristic of becoming an adult. If you develop a group identity that's based on joy, you get something which brings good things into the world. Now there aren't a lot of those going on, but as a community we need to be responsible for helping young adults gather together and form a group identity that says here's who we are, we have an identity worth proclaiming to a world, and we're glad to, uh, to um, let others know about it. That was one of the places where the, uh, for all the things that they've gotten wrong, The uh, cults tend to do very well with this. Almost all of the ambassadors of of cults are young adults who have a group identity, something worth saying, we're a part of this, here's a message of who we are, we're taking it out to the world because everybody should be a part of this group identity. It's something bigger than us that's worth living and dying for. And we need to bring that back into the church and say we want to develop strong group identity so you know that you're a part of us. The smallest group identity is two. And so marriage is the ultimate expression of the most difficult group identity to form uh, because it is a uh, mutually shared identity by two people who are about as different as they come which is to maintain it under all conditions 24 hours a day for the rest of your lifespan, in which both people are mutually cared for and both people are satisfied and they're able to take care of a wide variety of problems and always be glad to return to joy and be together. That's the ultimate test of 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 the hardest group identity to pull off. So you don't want to do that unless you have the joy already built in. You've learned a lot of things of taking care of one before you try to do two at a time. If you can't feed one cow, don't try to have a herd. (laughs) (laughs) Then the parent learns how to give without receiving in return. They have a larger group identity. They are now helping to develop uh, immature group identities by providing them um, the, uh, uh, the joyful identity around. They're now the older ones to look after. And once you've been able to raise your children to maturity, age of, of adults, at least 13, you're now ready to become parents at large. You're now ready to raise your community as a community of joy, where we're glad to be together, where we have a joyful identity. We know who we are and we know how to act like ourselves uh, when in trouble. Uh, so could one of you switch that off uh, the, the overhead at this point thank you The joyful identity is an actual <laughs> right of your brain it's behind the orbit or socket of your eye it's uh, prefrontal so it's not quite all the way to the front and the cortex it's on the outside of your brain so it's it's right in there it's just it's a physical address it's like northeast Pasadena something like that is, you know, <laughs> when you get down to it um, the Building of a joyful identity center is done through joy bonds, and those happen in the first 12 months of age. By the time that you get to 12 months, the majority of this brain structure is grown. It, it ultimately is about 35% of the adult brain in the prefrontal cortex. If you take both sides into account, you're born without it, and it grows during these months in time. and It grows, grows in response to stimulation. Um, once it has grown to its full strength, it determines how much uh, trouble you can handle in your life. And learning to handle trouble happens between 12 and 18 months of age, Uh, and it should start early, right at 12 months of age, because you have to learn how to return to joy. Your emotions up to then were not that powerful, but at 15 months of age they kick in, and then children start going into limbic rages, and they start tantruming, we call it in regular English, and the child who was pretty mild-mannered before that is now just having this emo- enormous emotional energy. They're also getting terrified and that begins to begin the era, the era of being afraid of being alone at night and things like that. So if you haven't learned how to return to joy from these terrifying and anger producing feelings when they were mild you're gonna have a hard time doing it now. If You couldn't drive the car in the simulator when you get out there and they really put a power- powerful engine in it, you're gonna run into a tree. And many people just face those terrible twos because they haven't built joy strength. They haven't taught the child how to return to joy. And now they've got a powerful emotional engine inside. there, just powering through them, and they have no idea how to drive. And, And as a result, they try to solve the entire problem not by teaching the child joy, but by punishing them. And so you're going to be angry. You're going off to your room, and you can come back out when you can act like yourself. Now, how do you learn return to joy if joy means glad to be together under those conditions? Because there's no way to be glad to be together with anyone when you're angry. Because you're off in your room by yourself. There is no anyone there. And so the return to joy circuit is, for anger, the most common one to be missing. And you can just see from that training how it worked. Now, joy mountain and uh, joy camp are just an analogy that we use to talk about it. If you had a camp, you set it up as the place you want to live when you're going camping, for us as human beings, the place where we would want to live would be joy camp. It would be a place of joy. It would be where we'd want to be all night. We'd take all of our expeditions, expeditions from there. We'd, when we got back home at night, we'd all want to get back to camp. And we wouldn't be happy until everybody else was back in camp to, with us <laughs> together. Uh, Dr, Dr. Rumberger here had a, had a story of going camping with his family, I think about a year or so ago. Uh, they went out. Uh, camping and just before it got dark he thought he wanted to go fishing and so he went fishing to a nearby lake but he didn't really register where he was on the map so when he came to come back he followed the map but it ended up in the wrong place and so he was supposed to be home at 7.30 to cook the meal for his wife and and daughters, 7.30 he wasn't there. By 9 o'clock it's gotten dark uh, and he's two hours into dark, he's not home. Everyone is getting really upset. And he, he, just before dark, had kind of gotten the last light of the sun to look at the map and decide he's going to climb over this ridge and go down the next valley, and hopefully that's the right one. So he did, in the, in the dark and the moonlight climbed over that, came stumbling back down the ridge, and he did come back to camp. And at that point his family was, had decided he was probably dead, and they were very glad to have him and not sure whether they should kill him or be welcoming. But it gives you that sense, if you can put yourself in that, that you're not glad to be back until everybody is back in joy camp together. And this is the sense of who we are as a human community. If we want to be who we we're created to be, we're not glad until everybody's back in joy camp together. And what happens in our families and churches is we forget that. And we leave people out of camp and we try to go on as though they weren't missing. And and there's something just doesn't work about that whole formula. <coughs> but the strength that we develop to get back climbing over that ridge in our nervous system is the strength that we develop climbing joy. So the more joy we experience, the more strength we have to handle the negative emotions. It actually grows a physical part of the brain that's necessary to have that nervous system mass that's strong enough to handle all these overwhelming feelings that come in afterwards. So you have to actually grow a physical part of the brain and have the joy strength to manage feelings. So we're talking not about just a a conceptual exercise, but just something that's just as physical as if you had to develop muscles and you know that if you don't work out you're still not going to be able to lift something heavy it just doesn't happen by reading about it thinking about it saying this is these are actual cells in your body have to grow we have to practice work out working on this joy or it doesn't grow Um, and we can't spiritualize it away we can't just sit at home and pray Lord give me muscles we don't anticipate that's going to work. It isn't going to give you brain cells neither. <laughs> and when it happens that we've grown the strength... that means that we are operating from the front of our brain where the joyful identity center is instead of the back of our brain where our fear center is. So we're not doing things based on what we're afraid of. And in some people's lives you can predict all their decisions based on they will choose whichever one they're less, less afraid of. A procrastination is a perfect example of this. They're afraid of doing something but as they get more and more afraid that they're not going to get it done, at some point the strongest fear becomes, I'm not going to get it done, and then all of a sudden they start doing it. And that's fear-based, two fears competing with each other until they cross, and at the point they cross, they begin, you know, they get going. And most of us have at least experienced some, something like that. Uh, so we realize that part of our life is being governed by fear, and part of it by joy, and we want to ha- live into joy, because ultimately if perfect... Love casts out fear, and love is the basis of this joy. As we become more governed by love, fewer and fewer fears will have the power to govern us. will also go from the back of the brain to the front of the brain. What keeps this from happening is A and B not, type... Given this joy <laughs> is lacking a very essential ingredient with which to operate in life. And a child who's not taught how to return to joy is lacking another necessary ingredient. Without it, you can see how bad shape they're going to be in when something hard and painful and difficult happens to them. Type B traumas are the hard, difficult, painful things that happen to us that shouldn't happen. They are the real sinful events that enter into our life. However, I would say that it's not the only sinful event because the absence of joy is actually a sinful sort of state, isn't it? Because that wasn't what God created us for. And when there is no return to to joy from things... Um, so people who try to think that if you just work through traumas, you just think about a person's traumatic experience and work on that, and they'll get better, have missed an important ingredient. Because it isn't just resolving traumas, it's having a strong enough joyful identity. Traumas simply keep you from being able to grow your, your joyful identity. And so sometimes, however, if your joyful identity is too, strong to ha- I mean, too small to handle the trauma, you have to build someone's joy before they have enough strength with which to look at it a trauma that's come their way. So regardless of whether where you are in this process or who you are, building joy and learning to return to joy are primary parts of the uh, Christian life as well as the life of healing. The first way to bond is to grow love bonds. And this is taken out of the Red Dragon Cast Down which is basically how to have a love and joy bonded Christian community that allows us to heal and deal with our troubles. So if you're going to be doing or trying to practice any of this in, Christian, in a Christian community context, I'd recommend that book for you. Yeah. Um, and I really want to thank as many of you here in the conference that have picked up on this as possible, because I've never been at a conference when I have more people smiling at me as I'm walking up and down the aisles and through the elevator and going. I even have people smiling at me in the restroom. They've got a little uncomfortable <laughs> there, but... Uh, <laughs> Everywhere they go, they're building joy. You see, I'm stretching this. So it's been wonderful. Uh, returning to joy means that we meet else. people. And returning to joy means that we meet a person in their troubles genuinely where they are, not someplace that we prefer that they were. So we, we actually share their troubles as bad as they are, not trying to minimize them. So, if we say, you know, well, I didn't mean to hurt you, and so you shouldn't be so insulted, and so unless you, you know, get back to not being insulted with me, I'm not going to be glad to be with you, we haven't thrown the life ring to where they are. If they're that upset and insulted, we go to that and we say, wow, you really are very upset and insulted with me. You know, I really didn't intend that, but I see where we ended up over here, you know. Uh, I tripped, you fell, you landed way down there, that's terrible. I'm going all the way to where you are and say, I'm still going to be glad to be with you. Please forgive me so you'd be glad to be with me. And we return we back to joy together that way, you say. And we learn to do this with all the unhappy feelings. And the interesting thing is that most of us as as adults have a chance to do this far more often than we do the building joy. In fact, in, in America now that we have a lot of uh, uh, recombined families, you know, after divorces. If you're gonna bond with people in a recombined family, you're gonna find that most of them are hurting and they're not really glad to have you as the other new parent in the in the 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 pattern. You're not going to to be building joy together. It's like, oh, daddy, I'm so glad you've stepped in, you know. This is not what happens. But if you can be glad to be with them and they're feeling angry, upset, hurt with you, and all of the the negative feelings that they're going with, and they say, well, I I will be glad to be with and help you deal with all of those difficult problems. In fact, what makes you really glad is that I'm the person who you can hate to have as a stepdad, and I'm still going to care about you and be glad to be with you, because otherwise you're going to have a hard time handling that hate. And I'm not going to underestimate how much you hate me at the moment. I'm going to genuinely say, that must be hard to handle with right there. You have to live in the same house with someone you hate that badly. And returning, you know, that, that does something inside of us. It's like, well, maybe this is a good thing to have in my life. And we really begin to appreciate those who genuinely meet us in our distress and say, I'll be glad to be with you even in this kind of trouble and bring you back from there. Now, i just assume we didn't have those problems, but since they are out there present with us, we need to know that there are these two ways to bond, through building joy and through returning people to joy. Now, what that allows us to do is it lets us act like ourselves when we are in pain and distress. Um, this is the, the effect of a bond. When someone joins us in our distress and we're angry and feeling hate, for instance, they say, okay, well, what would it be like us to do when we're feeling hate? Well, Ephesians 2.10. You are God's craftsmanship, redeemed in Christ in order to do the good works for what you were cre- for which you were created. So what does that mean it would be like us to do? Good works. Get right to the bottom line. What we're created to do, the things most like us to do if we're redeemed in Christ, is to do good works. Okay, what kind of good works do you do if you're in hate? Well, most of us haven't thought about that much. Okay. Well, what, what would be a good work to do with hate? Well, the first good work we would want to do is we would want to thoroughly and, and completely confess how that hate looked to God. Let's go and inventory this. He's the one who wants to be with us and deal us with this, this problem. So let's tell him all about it. Let's not pretty it up. Oh, well, it's not that bad. No, oh, it's a really bad hate. You know, here's where I am. It's right like this. Let me confess it all to you. Let me also say that I'm, I'm you know, I'm not really able to, uh, to take it away. So we can say how small we were. Be like us to be pretty small in the face of that hate, you know? I'm not big enough to carry all of that. I could maybe use a savior right about this point in time to help me with this kind of hate. So we don't try to be big enough to handle all these. Is that not like us to do? Are we not small people? Are we not small people with problems? Are we very much like us. Where would we do with the small? The, if We're small people with big problems. We go to the big guy, and this would be what like us to do, right? This is, makes all sense, you see. It's that, you know take it out of the theory. Of course, that's what we want to do. And who's going to be glad to be with us under those conditions? Well, Jesus will. He's only not happy to be with people who pretend. And you can take it from there because you begin to get the idea here. The amount of... find is they're just overwhelmed and confused and they can't go there. So there's occasionally times people have anger or fear or hate or other problems that are simply too big for them to carry alone. If they have a group identity, one of the things that you can find is that as a group we can carry more of this pain together by sharing a group identity. Our joint joy is stronger than any of our individual joy. So one of the reasons to build a corporate strong identity is that together we can handle these feelings. And so we can go with someone who hasn't the strength to handle their hate and say but I can help you handle your hate, and I've got two or three other brothers and sisters that can help you handle this hate. Together we'll be with you, and together we'll intercede, and together we'll work this out. And even if you haven't the strength to do it, and you flop around, and you can't remember who you are, there'll be so many of us reminding you who you are, that there won't be a problem. So yeah, we remember who you are. Remember what it's like us to do. We remember that the problem is that bad. It's not a problem. We will keep reminding you until all of us together have come together. At this point, we've returned to joy. This is why a corporate identity and returning to joy together lets us handle problems much, much bigger than any of us could ever have enough joy to do alone. And that's why it's so important, of course, to be part of God's corporate identity. If we're not part of that huge joy supply, we're really going to have trouble when it comes to the big ones, because there's some things that you can get together a group, but it still isn't going to work. You have to have God. And He's the ultimate source of our joy. And who would be more willing to help us in our troubles than He? And when we know who we are, and act like ourselves, one of the things it's like ourselves to do is to call on God to be a part of this whole thing. We never want to let that forget that we're a part of that. And so I have people who are learning how to return to joy, and they're saying to me about their life of the Christian church, why is it that they never remember to pray when they're in church mad and screaming at each other? Wouldn't that be when you'd want to really stop and pray? And when I tell them, shouldn't we pray now? They just get mad. It's Like, what are you laying a guilt trip on me for? Well, but that is really how a lot of us react. Isn't it just amazing? One of the things that's happened to me with dealing with hurt people as much as I have is that it's done an awful lot of good to get me out of that mindset of that I'm handling this myself. And after I get it handled, then we'll stop and pray. Because I don't know how to have a group identity that, that well. And that might have something to do with the Norwegian family roots that I have, that we don't handle things together. Norwegians tend to uh, you know, handle them by themselves. You know, we, break our legs, we'll finish doing all of the chores around the farm, then we'll walk into town and see if the doctor I have a look at this thing. <laughs> and we probably won't tell anybody that it happened, you know, because we're going to handle it all ourselves, this is, you know, and in so doing we have very little joy. I can see we don't have to go into that. No. <laughs> Why do we hurt? Well, I'm going to look at us a little bit differently than we normally do. We, we're used to thinking of ourselves as uh, body, mind, and, and, and spirit, or, or the soul and body and all those kinds of divisions. But one of the most essential ways of dividing this up in Scripture is, is heart, soul, and mind. In fact, Jesus has said that you should love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. And the Old Testament has something very similar to it. It says you should love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. So I patch the two of them together, if you'll allow me to do that, and say you should love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your mind, and all that love should be full-strength love. In other words, it ought to be every part of me really wants to be together with God. We're glad to be together. It's a joy-based identity. My heart is so joyful to be together with God. My soul is so joyful to be together with God. My mind is so joyful to be together with God. We all do that with all of our strength, as much as we could possibly want, our full joy bucket is just addressed to we want to be with every part of us. Now what that tells me also is interesting that if each of these parts are commanded, each of these parts has their own will, otherwise the command would make no sense. Your heart can choose some things, it has its own will and sense. Your soul can choose things, it can have sort of a will in its own sense, and your mind can choose things. It has sort of a will in its own sense. And we're mostly, as Westerners, used to thinking about our mind as having all of our will in it, because that's what chooses to do things. And I'd love to lecture on that one, but I won't, uh, just because of time. But if we look at our heart, that one component, which is where I'm going to start now, our heart, and when you look through it Scripture, and it's specifically talking about it, because in a lot of Scriptures you can find heart, soul, or mind just interchangeably used as a word for a human being. So there's a lot of times when it, you could use any of the words because it just means a human. But when specifically talking about what it means as your heart as opposed to your soul and your mind, our heart is always our eyes and ears in the spirit world. So it's our spiritual discernment. Our spiritual eyesight is what scripture means by the heart. So when we as a spiritual person want to know the truth, want to know something, the way we know it is through the heart. And that's how we see God. And uh, our heart can be in all kinds of shape, and uh, uh, good shape or bad shape. But the heart that I'm talking about today is the new heart that Jesus gives us, the one that he comes to dwell in. And while the old heart that we might have had before Christ may be in terrible shape, the heart that Jesus lives in and dwells in actually does see and perceive God. That's not a bad place. And, and there's just and a lot of scripture about uh, heart. Even the heart is where we must forgive others from. Jesus said you must forgive others from your heart. And not that By that, I think he specifically means not your soul or your mind. Your mind can forgive others, your soul can forgive others, but it's those who forgive from the heart, which means spiritually they look at it the same way God does. So when your eyes or your spirit see things the same way God does in regard to that brother or sister, then you have, that's when the forgiveness is complete. You're now on the same page with God. Well, this heart that God gives us as the new creatures that comes from Jesus is, if we look at in the spirit realm, allows us to see who we really are in Christ as new creatures. So where we previously saw, looked at other people according to the flesh, through our fleshly eyes, we now look at them according to the spirit, which means ourselves also. We see ourselves as different through the spirit, through the eyes of our heart, than we would otherwise. And when we look at ourselves through the eyes of the Spirit, we always find that we are created, handcrafted, God's craftsmanship for good works. In other words, there would be nothing more like us to do than good works. Now that's very different than the eyes of the flesh. But we see now why God made us finely crafted instruments for good works. And that heart is that area of perception. Now most of us have had very few people look at us that way and we don't tend to look at ourselves that way either. So we don't see what God sees when he looks at us or when we look at others. But it's precisely when we begin to look at things there that we find what we're like. And I'm going to simplify that for us because it's a complicated picture but every aspect of what we're like is also what Christ is like. Because the heart he gave us is like him, we're created in his image, so every aspect of who we are as spiritual beings is also a characteristic of Christ. So when we're looking at the characteristics of our hearts, the ones that Jesus gave us, they're clearly also characteristics of Christ's heart. They're smaller, lesser amounts, but they're still the same characteristic. The one I was telling you about earlier that my mother helped discover in my heart was kindness. And so that is the kindness a characteristic of Christ? Yes, it is. And so when my heart, I discover that there's kindness in there, I say, oh, okay, that's what. Christ put in there. He wants this kindness to grow, to be manifested. That's part of the good works I'm created for. So when he looks at me and I've acted kindly, that for him is a wonderful thing. Now, let's look at how pain reveals your it heart. This bothers me. And it bothers me in a way that won't stop. I mean, if I drive past someplace and I see somebody doing something that's unkind, I go home, it's still on my mind. It still bothers me. I can't just ignore it. Someone else might go by it and not even notice it, but to me that was unkind. An unkind word spoken, it just lingers with me, it just bothers me, it, it hurts me, it causes me pain. It's a particular kind of pain that it causes me because I have a kind heart. So it'll hurt me and bother me more than it would somebody who didn't have a kind heart because to them it's like, so what? And when we begin to look at that, we realize that the things that grieve us and cause us the deepest pain are the ones that matter the most to our heart. It's the most sensitive thing about us, you say. If I poke you in the eye, it'll bother you. If I poke you on the fingernail, it won't. Because the eye is a very important part of you. You're very closely attached. That's very important to you. Your fingernail, you can come and go. You don't care that much. Maybe you like to polish them, but that's, you know, you can poke them, whatever. Uh, Try not to break them. But our eye, that's a very important part of us. So are the big characteristics of our heart, when you get poked in that, you get the most pain and your heart will always be the source of the things that cause you the most pain in life. It is only those things that your heart truly and deeply cares about. One of my friends um, was a father they tried to get pregnant for six years. They got pregnant finally and in about the fifth month she miscarried. And he cried and grieved and cried and grieved. And after a year, he's a therapist, a therapist friend said, shouldn't you have worked through, that, through now and stopped grieving? And he said the most interesting thing to me, he said, the most important thing about me is a father. I'm a father's heart, and that was my child, and I wouldn't like me nearly so well if that didn't bother me the way it does. I miss the chance to have been a father to that child every day that I think about it, and it happens almost every day. What I would be giving to that child, I've not been able to give. And because I have a father's heart, it grieves me greatly. And so I'm glad for that. That's That's very like me to hurt about that. And as we begin to look at our hearts, what we begin to realize is what it's very like me to hurt about. Now the pain itself is not to be welcomed, but it is very much to be welcomed what it's like us to hurt about. Because that is what God does in the presence of sin or evil. He hurts about those things. And those who are his children will hurt about those things the way it's like him to hurt about them. And so the first thing we discover as we begin to look into the pain in our lives is why it's like us us to hurt. And Satan and his kingdom are dead, they feel no pain. It doesn't cause them any pain to cause us injury. There's no pain in any of that. But those of us who are alive, to the degree that we're alive, we know that we're alive because we feel the pain when something evil comes against us. So if we're gonna be in the heart of the war where good encounters evil. We know that that's happening because we experience pain. That means we are now at the heart of the war that God is about. What is good in us is encountering something that's evil. We are going to have any effect against evil at all in our life, it will happen only at the moments when we have pain. And the only ones that will feel pain are those which are good and alive. If there's life left, there's pain in it. If it's encountering something that should not be there. And so, in that sense, if we're going to be about spiritual warfare, about reclaiming anything of a territory for God, we're going to be living a life that is characterized by pain and suffering because we're going forward into a territory and the best news about us is it's like us to hurt about these things. And we need to be in a community in which it says we can say it's like us to hurt about that. You have a mother's heart it's like you to hurt when your child is in trouble. That's the best thing we can say about you. Now this continues till the end of the age. One one of the ways of looking at Jesus teaching about hell is, he says, at the end of this age we're reversing the polarity of the universe. Right now it hurts to be good, it doesn't hurt to be evil. At the end of the age we're switching the switch on that, it will then hurt to be evil, it will no longer hurt to be good. So if all you have in mind is to avoid pain, keep this in mind. You can have pain now for a while, and then it won't hurt to be good anymore, or later on you can have it forever and we're not going to reverse that situation. So if all you want to do is avoid pain, keep it in mind. You got the short-term pain to be good, or the long-term pain to be bad, it's coming later on. So I'd advise you to hurt better now for being good than later on when it's gonna hurt to be bad. Not to me, this is eminently fair. And I'm really glad that all those evil creatures that just take great pleasure in hurting us are eventually going to find (laughs) that painful. Uh, I just wish this on the devil in the biggest way. And I think you probably do inside too. (laughs) So we need enough joy inside and enough of a joyful identity to live with our hearts. Jesus, uh, Paul, Peter said to Jesus, I will die with you. And in fact, his heart was right. His heart knew exactly what he was going to do. But when it came time to actually have the strength to do that that night, he didn't have the strength. He didn't have the joy. There wasn't the joyful connection with Jesus he needed to do that. And it tested his, his heart and his, his emotions took over. His soul ran off with him. And he said, no, I can't stand it. I can't live with what my heart says. But his heart was entirely right, for in the end, he grew to have the strength to actually do that, and he endured until the end. He had the strength to die. But at first, he didn't. Um, People who love the people who are abusing them, and that's the case for almost everyone out of an abusive background that I've met, they love their abusive parents. They love the people who abuse them. It's the most painful aspect of their life. But who is it like, To love those that abusively treat you. Is it not like the heart of Christ? Is that not the most painful thing about it? And they will spend their life, because they haven't the joyful identity, trying to make themselves stop caring about that. That is not the way it works. Because our heart cares about those things, even if our soul and our mind and our joyful identity are too weak. So when we're coming along with the wounded, we are helping them to build up enough joyful identity that they can eventually accept what their heart has accepted all along. We are helping people to live with their heart until they finally have the strength to hold on to their heart and say, yes, now I know why it's like my heart to care about these things. It's because I have a heart like Jesus and he's glad to be with me in these times. He would care about it just the way that I have cared about it. My heart is like his. And so when we try to talk about our own heart, and I want you to think a moment. <clears throat> In my life experience, it is very interesting to me. I have only been screamed and yelled at, uh, insulted, and even physically hit during those times I was trying to be kind. I've actually never had that treatment for the times I was trying to be mean, and I've been mean. Um, but I got, to some degree, I always got away with being mean. But I've had people, and they've always been Christian people, screaming and yelling in my face because they misunderstood something I was doing when I was kind of. I run through that memory in my life. That's always when I've been attacked the hardest. When I, If I'm likely to lose my license as a psychologist, it's most likely going to be over something kind that I did because as professionals, we're not supposed to be professionally kind to people. And I've gotten myself in trouble before with my colleagues because it just didn't seem kind to not give someone food, for instance. But that's not a professional thing to do. We're supposed to get them in touch without feels to feel hungry, and that's about it. You know, now they've processed and felt their feelings, and now it's their business. But that seemed unkind to me, so I, I, I couldn't live with that. Um, but that's what gets you in trouble. And why is that? It's because the world, Satan, all he has to do is attack your heart. And it's not very long before he figures out exactly what it is. He does not know necessarily what God gave you a kind heart for. But he knows that if he gave you a kind heart, the one thing he has to do to succeed is make sure you don't use it. And the one thing he knows is nothing will hurt you more than attacking your heart. And that's the most likely thing to make you back away and say, I'm not going to do that. So by the time I got to be a teenager, the Stoics were my heroes. And I thought, I, I want to be, be a pathologist. I want to be a doctor, I can help people but I can do it as a pathologist because I, I had heard already that pathologists were the nastiest of all the doctors and at pathology conventions they just, you know, they fought and, and carried on and you could help people by sticking them with a needle and you never had to even be pleasant with them. You, know, you didn't have to be kind about it in any way. And I was trying to run away from my kind heart. See I don't want to do that because you're kind to people, they're going to step on you, they're going to be mad at you, they're going to be upset, they're going to misunderstand you. Uh, Kindness is not a payoff here. I can avoid that attack by not, not going there. And so I'm trying to run away from my heart. And when I go back to my heart, I have to embrace the pain that it causes me to be kind in a world where that doesn't fit. But the thing about it that I found was no matter how far I ran away, it didn't work. I still hurt. I still was bothered. I was still miserable when I wasn't being kind and when others weren't too. I simply couldn't escape the heart that Jesus gave me. And you can't either. And neither can anyone else. And so, as we want to encourage each other, with pain, it's to begin to look at, why Why does your heart hurt that way? What would it be about you that's still alive enough? If you're always saying, it's not fair, it's not fair, it's not fair, what kind of heart do you have? You have a heart for justice. And injustice is just going to bother you. Now, it sort of goes by me. I don't notice it that much. But some people are just terribly bothered by it. And that's because if you put all of us together, corporately, we have all the characteristics of Christ's heart, but individually, none of us have them in that big of an abundance. But that's why we need to have all of us together, and we need to be able to encourage each other. Oh, I know why that hurts you. You will be living according to the main characteristics of your heart. If you're a giver or a teacher you should teach. And what hurts teachers? Teachers are greatly bothered when people don't see and don't learn. It just drives teachers crazy. I have two daughters who are teachers, nothing bothers them more than when students aren't, aren't learning. I could probably walk away and go, well, yeah, they didn't get it. Of course, if I'm teaching my seminars here, it bothers me. <laughs> but should I do that to them? Should I not say, you know, it's just like a teacher's heart to be distressed by that. That must be hard to live with to have a heart for these kids and they're just not getting it. That's nothing could hurt you more, and I'm so glad you have that kind of a heart. Let's encourage you for that. That's that is where God is at work between you and evil. Somehow He wants kids to learn, and encouragers should encourage. And what hurts an encourager? They're hurt when people don't move. I encourage and encourage, and there was no response. It just drives encouragers crazy. And we'd say it's just like you. You're an encourager. You have an encouraging heart, and nothing could hurt you more than that. And we should be able to help each other, be a community that says, I know your heart. Of course that's going to hurt you worse than anything at all. And givers should give. When their givers' hearts hurting? Well, when others don't appreciate it or don't receive what they're giving. Or when they, someone needs to have someone, someone give to them. Serving hearts, when, when their brothers and sisters aren't being served, it just drives them crazy. They they hear about a problem anywhere in the world where someone ought to be serving the needs of the, of, of the people there, and they just they're, you know you can see they're in pain. They're just squirming. They're walking back and forth. And just how can I stand this pain that my brother and sister and, and wherever it was is not being served? Someone ought to serve them. So where this need just drives me crazy. That's the kind of heart I have. I can't get away from the pain. It's just I'm squirming. I'm trying to find a way back to joy. How can I be glad to live with a heart like this, a heart that Jesus gave me? One that would hurt about these things the way it does. When we hurt like this, those who help us to live with our heart help us to continue to act like ourselves. So they say, yes, you have a kind heart. Of course you want to run away because you're going to get pounded for having a kind heart. But I want to encourage you to go on being kind. I want to encourage you to go on Serving. I want to encourage you to go on teaching. It's going to hurt like crazy, because that's what happens to the good people in the world. You will suffer, and we'll be so glad to know you and be close to you and share that suffering with you. Because I am so glad that at least somebody cares about that. That you have a heart that would melt that way. That would just care about that so deeply. And I'd rather share that suffering with you than than break apart. Well, let's pray a second here, shall we? Lord God, you've given each of us a heart, and it has both joy and pain in it. We long for the time when you would say to us, I'm glad to be with a heart like yours. And as people here have felt some of the pain that's characteristic of them, and I don't know what it is, because I don't know their hearts, I ask for uh, three things. One, that you would take them to the source of the pain, and bring healing to their lives. And if all they can find is the pain and they don't know why their heart hurts that way, I ask that you would bring them a spirit of wisdom and revelation that would reveal to them, either through their brothers and sisters or through an encounter with your Holy Spirit, why it's like them to hurt that way. I know that those particularly that you created for fellowship, and so many of those who are broken have had their set need for fellowship and bonds disrupted. But you've built them to be part of community. And it just kills them to be alone and to be apart in a way. Nothing causes them greater anguish than that. And in all of our hearts, we have some part that does that. I ask that you would meet that right now and renew with us within us that pain and bring those who would be joyful to be with us. And so that you would renew and restore the communities around us in such a way that you would bring to each one here those who would see their heart and rejoice in it and be their companions, to lift them up when they're too weak, to encourage them uh, when they're discouraged, and to remind them when they've forgotten, and to be very, very, very patient with them all, so that their hearts would again be the center of what you're doing in our community and our lives. I ask for the comfort of your Holy Spirit to be upon those wounds, those deepest of all wounds, the ones that go right to our hearts that we simply can't stop caring about. And for those of us who need to build more joy, I ask that you would provide that miracle that you provide through your body of rebuilding the joy structures in our mind that we might somehow again live with the hearts that you gave us and be able to embrace the mission and purpose for which you brought us to the world that we would care about the things that are just like you to care about, even when it hurts. And then, Lord, give us the eyes to see and encourage the little hearts and others that are hurting, but especially the ones that are hiding, the ones who, like me, are running running away to be as mean as possible when we really have a heart for kindness we're running away to be as lonely and isolated as possible when we have a heart for community, when we're running away to uh, be as stingy as possible when we really have a heart for giving, that we would no longer see according to the flesh, but help people reach into the heart that you have given them and call forth the things that bring you joy in your kingdom, that you, Lord Jesus, would be glorified and that what you created in us would burst into new life. For it's for your name we pray, in your name we pray, for the sake of your kingdom. Amen. I've been asked from time to time how I would like to describe the, the, the counseling, my goals for the counseling center that I'm a part of. And I've said I want us to be companions of the heart. Those who would know and encourage each other to continue to live according to that heart. You ask me my goal for the church; it would be that we would be companions of the heart. If you ask my goal for a conference, it would be that we would come to become companions of the heart with at least God's the people that God has put in us, so that we it would begin. Really matter how obnoxious the behavior, how much they're running from it, we can begin to see what God is calling them to. We can be glad to be with that which God has put in them, even though they can't see it. And some of us need that in terms of ourselves. I believe probably all of us. There's some part of our heart we're still running away from. We need someone to say to us, I know what you're running away from. I know why you're headed out to Tarshish on the post, first boat. You, you have a heart that's going to be real painful. You, know? you have a heart for forgiveness, and you know it's going to just kill you when God forgives all of those uh, people in Nineveh. And you know he's going to do it too because you just know what kind of heart he is and that's going to hurt you a lot because you'd like to have some revenge here. And you can't live with that heart. Well, we're going to encourage you on this voyage. There's so many stories about that that we could tell to each other, to the people that we've known the best. And we need somebody to tell those stories to us. So please, tell someone who loves you about your heart. Don't let it be alone anymore, God did not create our hearts to live in isolation. I believe that's the most strategic and successful strategy of the enemy, is to make us hide our hearts. It's better to be among an obnoxious bunch of brethren with our hearts exposed than to be hidden from them trying to protect ourselves. The best news about you is just like you to hurt. Your master did, and he'll have joy to be with you, and you'll find people that will do that too. Thank you.